0: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series, Monstrous Moms and Dastardly Dads. In this chapter, we'll see some similarities to the Diane Downs case. This mom also had a troubled life, sought acceptance by sleeping with multiple men, and when she was rejected by one of her lovers, decided to rid herself of her children. The way she did it was the thing of nightmares and earned her the title of the most hated woman in America when her crime was discovered. Join me for Chapter 3, Susan Smith. Tuesday, November 3rd, 1994, Union, South Carolina. Recovery divers were probing the depths of John D. Long Lake. Police investigators on the shore watched and waited. They found the object they were looking for after only a few minutes, having been directed to a precise search area. However, they'd had to travel out further into the lake than they'd anticipated before they made their discovery. A tow truck was standing by, and a cable was tied to one end of it. The other end was attached to the object they found in the lake. Now with reporters and curious onlookers ringing the lake, the object was pulled out and emerged slowly. The sun would be setting soon, and the investigators needed to complete this task before dark. But it was still light when the object finally came into view. It was a car— A red four-door Mazda protégé was upside down, being pulled up through the mud. When enough of the car was on the shore, it was flipped right-side up. A tarp was set up to shield the car from the public, because what they found inside was too disturbing to witness. In the car were the bodies of two little boys, still strapped into their car seats. The bodies were quickly transferred to a waiting ambulance and taken to the medical center where autopsies would be performed. Investigators had been looking for this car for nine days. They could never have guessed that it would be lying in the bottom of the lake with the children they had believed kidnapped still inside. Only a confession had provided them with this information, a confession from the boy's own mother. The mother in question was 23-year-old Susan Smith. Susan was born on September 26, 1971. The only child of Harry and Linda Vaughn. Harry and Linda had a troubled marriage. They had married very young. She was only 17, and Harry just a couple of years older. Linda was pregnant from a previous relationship when she married Harry. She'd already had one child, a boy named Michael. She gave birth to her second son, Scotty, and later Harry and Linda's daughter, Susan, was born. The couple often fought in front of their children. Harry was very jealous and possessive, and sometimes their fights became so out of control that Harry would threaten to kill both his wife and himself. The children grew up frightened of their parents' fights. People remember Susan as a very quiet child. She was, however, very close to her father. She seemed to light up whenever he was around. Her older half-brother, Michael, tried to commit suicide by hanging when Susan was just a preschooler. He was hospitalized and put into residential treatment centers several times during Susan's childhood. When Susan was six, her mother filed for divorce. Harry, at this point, was obsessed with Linda and was continually harassing and threatening her. He was drinking more heavily as well and even asked police to take him to jail one time when he was found to have broken one of Linda's windows. He was afraid he might seriously hurt his estranged wife. In January of 1978, five weeks after Susan's parents' divorce became final, Harry committed suicide by shooting himself in the stomach. He didn't die immediately, but after arriving at the hospital, it would be too late to save him. He was 37 years old. Susan was devastated. Soon afterwards, Linda remarried. Susan's new stepfather was named Bev Russell. He was a business owner. While Linda and her children had always struggled financially, they now moved into Bev's house in the exclusive Mount Vernon Estates section of town. Susan did well in school and was well-liked. In her senior year of high school. She was voted friendliest female. Classmates remember her as cheerful and friendly, if a bit boy-crazy. She flirted and dressed in flattering ways to gain boys' attention. But at home, Susan was getting a bit too much attention from her stepfather, Bev. Susan felt a huge void when her father died, and she transferred her need for a father's love to Bev. When she was a teenager, she would lay on the couch and put her head in his lap. Bev took advantage of this to begin fondling his 16-year-old stepdaughter. Susan was at first confused by what had happened, but soon told her mother and a report to social services was made. While the matter was being investigated, Bev Russell moved out of the family home. Linda, Susan, and Bev went to a family counselor for a few sessions, but that seemed to be the extent of the consequences. The matter was dropped and Bev moved back into the house. The family blamed Susan and Bev equally, and thought Susan's report to social services just made the situation worse. The abuse, however, didn't end. The next year, Susan reported the sexual abuse to her school guidance counselor. The guidance counselor was mandated to report the abuse. A caseworker was sent to interview Susan and submitted a report about repeated fondling and molestation by Bev towards the girl. However, no charges were ever filed against her stepfather. It is believed that Linda pressured Susan not to press charges. That summer, Susan began to work at the Winn-Dixie Supermarket in town. She began a relationship with an older married coworker. She was also dating another co-worker at the same time. She became pregnant and had an abortion. Afterwards, her married boyfriend found out about her other relationship and ended their affair. She became depressed over the breakup and attempted to commit suicide by taking an overdose of aspirin and Tylenol. She was hospitalized for a week. It was discovered at this time that when she was 13, Susan had attempted suicide in the same manner. A pattern began to emerge in Susan Smith's life. One part of this pattern was that she would seek out the attention of several men at one time, often sleeping with multiple partners. The other was that she was most infatuated with older men and seemed to seek out their approval and love the most. Later, psychiatrists would speculate that this was either due to losing her father at such a young age, or the inappropriate sexual relationship she'd been subjected to by her stepfather, or a combination of the two. Susan met David Smith while working at the Winn-Dixie. They had attended high school together. They were just friends at first. Susan was dating the other two men at the store, and David also had a girlfriend. Susan returned to work a month after her suicide attempt. David and Susan now began a relationship. David broke up with his girlfriend, who he'd actually been engaged to, In order to be with Susan. In 1991, after dating David for about a year, Susan became pregnant. They decided to get married. They married on March 15, 1991. Linda was not happy about her daughter's pregnancy and marriage. She disapproved of David as he was not college educated and had no money. He lived with his great-grandmother but was renovating a house on her property where he and Susan could live. Linda felt the home was beneath her daughter Now Susan decided it wasn't good enough either. She compromised, and they instead moved into his great-grandmother's house. David and Susan's son, Michael Daniel Smith, was born on October 10, 1991. Susan continued to work at the Winn-Dixie and began taking college classes at the University of South Carolina. They had a decent income for a young couple, but Susan was far more interested in acquiring material possessions than David was, and they argued about money. David felt Susan's mother was too controlling and butted into their marriage too much, which caused tension. They were both jealous and often would cross the line into extramarital relationships to get back at one another. Susan and David would bounce back and forth in their relationship. Sometimes Susan would leave David and go home to her mother's. They separated several times in the first three years of their marriage. In 1992, Susan became pregnant for the second time. They decided they needed their own home to make their marriage work. They purchased a small house in Union. Susan's mother and stepfather gave them the down payment. Susan was unhappy during her second pregnancy. She and David began to fight and argue more. David was tired of his wife's numerous complaints about him and began to share his woes with a female co-worker. They began having an affair. The Smith's second son, Alexander Tyler, was born on August 5, 1993. Three weeks after Alex was born, Susan and David decided to separate. David moved back in with his great-grandmother. Susan did not want to return to work at Win dixie where David was now her boss. So she took a job as a bookkeeper at Conzo Products. She moved her way up into a position as the executive secretary for J. Kerry Finley, the president and CEO. Finley's son, Tom Finley, was 27 years old and was considered the town's most eligible bachelor as he was young rich, and single. He was working at Konzo as the head of the graphic arts department. Susan made lots of friends at Conzo, and the group would often head to a local bar called Hickory Nuts after work. Susan and Tom got to know each other during these social occasions. They dated for several months in 1994. Susan also attended parties at the Finley's estate with Tom. During this time, Susan filed for divorce from David. David had since stopped seeing his coworker and wanted to reunite with Susan. They reconciled briefly, but it didn't last. It was finally over. David rented an apartment where he set up a room for the boys. He and Susan shared custody of the children with no problems. Susan began dating Tom Finley again after her final separation from David. In September 1994, Susan was happy. She and David were co-parenting the boys well, and she believed she and Tom's relationship was becoming serious. But Tom and Susan were on different pages. While Susan was in love with Tom and was pushing for a more committed relationship, Tom liked Susan but wasn't serious about her. He thought they were just having a casual relationship, just a bit of fun. Whether he knew that Susan was formally ending her marriage, believing that a promise from Tom was in the works, is unknown. Tom decided he needed to end the relationship with Susan because he felt she was becoming too possessive and too needy. On October 21st, Susan's divorce papers were filed at the Union County Courthouse, but just a few days before, she received a Dear John letter from Tom Finley. In it, he wrote, This is a difficult letter for me to write because I know how much you think of me. And I want you to know that I am flattered that you have such a high opinion of me, Susan. I value our friendship very much. You are one of the few people on this earth that I feel I can tell anything. You are intelligent, beautiful, sensitive, understanding, and possess many other wonderful qualities that I and many other men appreciate. You will, without a doubt, make some lucky man a great wife. But, unfortunately, it won't be me. Even though you think we have much in common, we are vastly different. We have been raised in two totally different environments, and therefore, think totally different. That's not to say that I was raised better than you, or vice versa. It just means we come from two different backgrounds. Right before I graduated from Auburn University in 1990, I broke up with a girl, Allison, that I had been dating for over two years. I loved Allison very much, and we were very compatible. Unfortunately, we wanted different things out of life. She wanted to get married and have children before the age of 28, and I did not. This conflict spurred our breakup, but we have remained friends through the years. Susan, I could really fall for you. You have so many endearing qualities about you, and I think that you are a terrific person. But like I have told you before, there are some things about you that aren't suited for me. And yes, I am speaking about your children. I'm sure that your kids are good kids, but it really wouldn't matter how good they may be. The fact is, I just don't want children. These feelings may change one day, but I doubt it. With all of the crazy mixed-up things that take place in this world today, I just don't have the desire to bring another life into it. And I don't want to be responsible for anyone else's children either. But I am very thankful that there are people like you who are not so selfish as I am and don't mind bearing the responsibility of children. But our differences go far beyond the children issue. We are just two totally different people, and eventually those differences would cause us to break up. Because I know myself so well, I am sure of this. But don't be discouraged. There is someone out there for you. In fact, it's probably someone that you may not know at this time, or that you may know but would never expect. Either way, before you settle down again with anyone, there is something you need to do, Susan, because you got pregnant and married at such an early age. You missed out on much of your youth. I mean, one minute you were a kid, and the next minute you were having kids. Because I come from a place where everyone had the desire and the money to go to college— Having the responsibility of children at such a young age is beyond my comprehension. Anyhow, my advice to you is to wait and be very choosy about your next relationship. I can see this may be a bit difficult for you because you are a bit boy crazy, but as the proverb states, good things come to those who wait. Have a good time and capture some of that youth that you missed out on, but just don't get seriously involved with anyone until you have done the things in your life that you want to do first. The rest will fall into place. Susan, I'm not mad at you about what happened this weekend. Actually, I am very thankful. As I told you, I was starting to let my heart warm up to the idea of us going out as more than just friends. But seeing you kiss another man put things back into perspective. I can't let myself get close to you. We will always be friends, but our relationship will never go beyond that of friendship. Everyone is held accountable for their actions— and I would hate for people to perceive you as an unreputable person. If you want to catch a nice guy like me one day, you have to act like a nice girl. And you know, nice girls don't sleep with married men. So please think about your actions before you do anything you will regret. Again, you will always have my friendship, and your friendship is one that I will always look upon with sincere affection. Tom. Tom's warnings about becoming known as a disreputable person was the result of an incident that had taken place at a party at the Finleys' estate not long before. Susan was seen kissing the husband of a co-worker in a hot tub. Susan had been trying to make Tom jealous, like she used to do with David, to test and see if he cared about her. Instead, it proved to her new boyfriend that she was untrustworthy. That was one reason he gave for breaking things off with her. The other reason was that Tom Finley had decided long before that he didn't want to be a father or stepfather to someone else's kids either. But Susan wasn't ready to give up on the relationship. She continued to try and talk to Tom for several days after receiving the letter. She alternately tried to gain sympathy from him and to make him jealous. She told him about her sexual relationship with her stepfather. Susan admitted that she was molested as a teen, but also told him that she was still having sex with Bev Russell. The last time was only three months earlier. Tom didn't feel sorry for her, however. The fact that as a grown woman, Susan was still having an affair with her mother's husband was sad and sick, he thought. On October 25, 1994, Susan became even more depressed about her breakup with Tom. After dropping Michael and Alex at daycare, she went to work at Conzo as usual. She and a group of co-workers went to a restaurant for lunch. Tom Finley was there as well. Susan was unusually quiet that day. Back at the office, Susan approached her supervisor at about 1.30 p.m. and asked to go home early. She told her she was upset because she was, quote, in love with someone who doesn't love me. Asked who it was, Susan answered, Tom Finley, but it can never be because of my children. Susan, however, didn't go home. Around 2.30, she called Tom and asked him to meet her outside the building to talk. Susan told him she'd had an affair with his father, her boss, J. Carey Finley. She told him she was confessing this to him because the details might come out in her divorce proceedings. Tom was shocked, and after hearing her confession, made it clear to her that he would never have a physical relationship with her again. She hadn't made him jealous or desperate to hold on to her. She had misplayed her hand, and now realized that all chances of getting back with Tom were ruined. She made one more excuse to see him in his office that day. She said she was wanting to return a sweater of his. He told her to keep it. She left work and picked up Michael and Alex at daycare. On her way home, she passed the bar and saw her friend and coworker Sue in her car in the parking lot. She stopped to talk to her, telling her about her conversation with Tom. She asked Sue to ride with her back to the office so that she could apologize to him. Sue waited in the car with the boys while Susan went inside. Tom was not happy to see her and quickly walked her out of his office. She told Sue she was very upset and may just end it. Susan drove Sue back to her car and dropped her off about 6 p.m. Later that night, Susan called her friend while she was having dinner at Hickory Nuts. She asked her if Tom was there as well. She told her he was. Susan asked her if he'd mentioned her. Sue told her he had not. At 8 p.m., Susan dressed her boys and put them in the car, strapping them into their car seats. She began to drive around Union. She later would say that she'd never felt so sad and lonely in my entire life. Around 9 p.m., a woman named Shirley McLeod was sitting in her living room in her home, only one quarter of a mile from John D. Long Lake. She heard a woman wailing on her front porch. Opening the door, she saw Susan Smith, who was a stranger to her, crying, Please help me, he's got my kids and he's got my car. Shirley led her inside, and Susan told her, A black man has got my kids in my car. Shirley's son called 911. Susan would give this account of the events of that night. I was stopped at the red light at Monarch Mills, and a black man jumped in and told me to drive. I asked him why he was doing this, and he said, Shut up and drive, or I'll kill you. At the abductor's direction, she drove northeast of Union for about four miles, until, quote, he made me stop right past the sign. Shirley confirmed that the sign was for the John D. Long Lake, which was located several hundred yards outside of Shirley's front door. He told me to get out. He made me stop in the middle of the road. Nobody was coming, not a single car, Susan continued. I asked him, why can't I take my kids? Susan told Shirley that the man said, I don't have time. She said that the man pushed her out of her car while he was pointing a gun at her side. When he finally got me out, he said, Don't worry, I'm not going to hurt your kids. Susan described how she had laid on the ground as the man drove away, while both of her sons were crying for her. After a while, Susan wasn't sure how long. She began to run and stopped when she reached Shirley McLeod's porch. Sheriff Howard Wells soon arrived at the McLeods to begin directing the search for the children. Incidentally, Wells was good friends with Susan's brother, Scotty, and his wife. Susan described the boys to Sheriff Wells. Michael was three years old, wearing a white jogging suit, and Alex was 14 months old and wearing a red and white striped outfit. Wells called in Robert Stewart, head of the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, or SLED, to help in assisting them to find the carjacker and the missing children. The family had been called, and Susan's mother and stepfather as well as David arrived. The investigators told them they should pick one location to work out of, and they decided on Susan's mother's home. David drove Susan there. On the way, she told him that Tom Finley might come to see her there, and she didn't want David to be angry about it. He thought it was incredible that that was even a concern for her. Their babies were missing, abducted by a stranger, and she was worried he might be jealous? Because the carjacking had taken place so close to the lake, they sent divers to search it. They also sent a helicopter with heat-seeking equipment to fly over the lake. They didn't find anything in the area of their search. They also asked Susan to meet with a forensic artist to come up with a description of the carjacker. She described the man as a black male, 30 to 40 years old, 5 foot 9 to 6 foot tall, 175 pounds, dark hair, dark eyes with a medium build, wearing a dark knit cap, dark shirt, and a plaid jacket. The forensic artist thought she was very vague in her description of the kidnapper the Adam Walsh Center offered its assistance to the Smiths. The center was named after six-year-old Adam Walsh, who disappeared from a Florida Sears department store while shopping with his mother in 1981. Adam's body was found 10 days later, 150 miles from where he was abducted. His parents, John and Revy Walsh, worked tirelessly to lobby for standardized emergency protocols whenever a child went missing, including information clearinghouses, improved communications between law enforcement and other agencies, and quick dissemination of information to the media and help with the search. John Walsh went on to create the television program America's Most Wanted to Catch Wanted Fugitives, a program that was featured in my last episode about the John List case. The director of the South Carolina chapter of the Adam Walsh Center spoke to Susan's sister-in-law, Wendy Vaughn, to offer the family help. She met with Susan, David bevin linda russell and scotty vaughn on october 26th she explained that it was important for the boy's parents to get out in front of the media and make a plea for their safe return the news media outlets covering the story was growing the story would be covered nationwide in a matter of days david and susan stood in front of the sheriff's department with cameras rolling Afterwards, the couple went inside. Susan was interviewed alone. Her interview lasted several hours, and she was asked to repeat the details of her story several times. The following day, Thursday, October 27th, both David and Susan Smith were administered polygraph tests. They were both informed of their Miranda rights, their right to remain silent, and their right to an attorney. They were told they could stop talking to investigators at any time. The results of David's polygraph test confirmed that he didn't know anything about the disappearance of his sons. Susan's test came back inconclusive. The question that showed the greatest level of deception was, do you know where your children are? Susan told David she thought she had not done well on the test. She told him she thought the police doubted her story. Investigators had found several inconsistencies in Susan's story. She told them the kids were fussy that evening and didn't want to eat dinner. She said she had taken them to the Walmart that evening. First, she said that Michael had asked to go. Then she said that she had suggested they go. After leaving Walmart, they drove to Foster Park and stayed there till about 8.40 p.m., but didn't leave the car. She had returned to the Walmart parking lot that night, she said, because the light was brighter there and she had to look for Alex's bottle that had dropped on the floor of the car. She said that she had planned to visit a friend, Mitchell Sinclair. She was driving to his house when she stopped at the red light on Monarch, where she was approached by the carjacker. The agents then told Susan that they had spoken with Mitchell, and he told them he hadn't spoken to her and wasn't expecting her that evening. They also told her that they had spoken to many Walmart employees who were working there that night, and none recalled seeing her or her children. She then changed her story, saying she had actually just driven around in the car with the children for hours. She hadn't told them that before, she stated, because it sounded suspicious. And there was another detail they'd uncovered. Susan had said that there were no other cars in the intersection when she was approached by the stranger. But they had determined that the light at the intersection at Monarch was on a sensor and would only have turned red if there were other cars crossing from the opposite direction. The fact that in Susan's story there were no other cars meant that she could not have been stopped at a red light. She had to be lying. Susan's description of the carjacker being a black man was also called into question. Most believed that it was unlikely that a black man driving around in a car with two young white boys inside would go unnoticed, especially since such an intense search was being conducted. Later, Agent Caldwell from SLED interviewed her again about her inconsistent statements and the Walmart story. She again told him how the boys were being fussy that night. Agent Caldwell then asked her, is that why you killed them? Susan slammed her fist on the desk and said, you son of a bitch, how can you think that? I can't believe you think I did it. She then left the interrogation room. At the same time, David was being interviewed in a separate room. He was asked if Susan was dating anyone. He told them that she'd dated several men. They wanted names and dates, and David was becoming frustrated and told them he thought they were wasting time with these types of questions. David couldn't believe that Susan or anyone they knew could be involved. He believed her when she'd said she'd been carjacked by a stranger. In the interview, they found out about Tom Finley and how he'd recently broken off things with Susan. They went back to Susan and asked her about Tom Finley. Did the fact that he'd broken up with her have any role in the disappearance of her children, they asked. Susan replied, No man would make me hurt my children. They were my life. Agents noticed that she spoke about her children in the past tense. Agent Caldwell also noticed that she would sob, but it was not always accompanied by tears. The FBI agent who administered the polygraph test also observed that Susan made fake sounds of crying with no tears in her eyes. The investigators now had deep suspicions about Susan Smith and felt she knew what had happened to her children and that she may very well have been involved. But they could also tell that it was not going to be easy to get her to talk. She was no cream puff. She was strong-willed and they didn't think they could get an easy confession out of her. They called the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit for help. They asked for a profile of characteristics of a homicidal mother. The profile they provided fit Susan Smith on almost every point. They said she would most likely be a woman in her 20s who grew up or lived in poverty, was undereducated, had a history of physical and or sexual abuse, had little to no social support, and had depressive or suicidal tendencies. Homicidal mothers often were experiencing rejection by a male lover at the time they killed their child. During the homicidal act, the report said, a mother may view a child as an extension of herself rather than as a separate being. Her suicidal inclination could be transformed into a homicidal impulse. While divers continued to search the lake, the experts had made one big mistake in coming up with the most likely scenario. They assumed that if someone drove a car into a lake, they would do so at a high rate of speed. A car will sink faster and closer to the shore if it is driven into water quickly. This will create more waves, stopping the forward momentum of the car. The car will actually stop and sink at the edge of the body of water. Knowing this, experts had the diver search for the car near the shoreline. Mark Klass, himself a parent of an abducted child, who was later found murdered, also offered his assistance. After the murder of his daughter, he had gone on to form the Mark Class Foundation for Children that helps parents of missing children. He and Jeannie Boynton, a cognitive graphic artist, asked the FBI's permission to come to South Carolina to help the family in the search. They agreed. Jeannie Boynton thought she could help Susan create a better sketch of the kidnapper to provide to the public and the media. But when they arrived, the Smiths would not meet with them. They found this odd. They knew that parents of abducted children will accept all the help they can get to find their child. David Smith's father contacted them and told them he'd set up a meeting between them and his son and Susan. But the Smiths continued to put them off. Mark Klass tried for four days to meet with them, but finally gave up and went home. He began to believe that Susan Smith was involved in the disappearance of her children. He didn't think she had hurt them, he said, but due to their recent divorce proceedings, He thought she might be hiding them from David because of a custody battle. Sheriff Wells, Robert Stewart, the chief of SLED, Agent Caldwell, the behavior specialists, and the FBI agents working on the case all concluded that Susan Smith was lying about her involvement in the disappearance of Michael and Alex. Now they just had to prove it. On October 26th, Tom Finley called Susan to tell her how sorry he was when he heard about the children. Susan was more interested in talking about the relationship, Finley told investigators. He told her not to concern herself with that, but she should just focus on helping the investigators find the boys. It would be the last time he would contact her. When a group of her coworkers came to visit her, Finley was not among them. She asked her friend Sue Brown to find out when Finley was coming to see her. Tom Finley had been contacted by investigators. He gave them a copy of the letter he had sent to Susan to end their relationship. He told investigators that Susan had seemed like such a nice person, but when he told her it was over, he was surprised at how bitter and vindictive she had become. Agent Caldwell, after interviewing Susan several times, had written up a psychological profile of her. He described her as a cool and calculated person who had a strong drive to succeed. His early suspicions of her caused him to believe that greed and ambition had been Susan's motivations for wanting her children gone. Her relationship with Tom Finley, who was successful and wealthy, was being threatened by the fact that she was a mother of two. He thought she could have latched onto this as the only thing standing in her way of the lifestyle she believed she should have. Never mind that Finley had also pointed out that she was too needy, too controlling, and too promiscuous for him to consider her as a long-term partner. Now even her supporters, the media and the public, were beginning to grow suspicious of Susan Smith. She must have seen the writing on the wall, because what happened next would bring all the walls tumbling down. On Thursday, November 3rd, nine days after the disappearance of Michael and Alex, Susan and David were scheduled to appear on three television network morning programs. On the CBS This Morning show, the interviewer asked her if she had anything to do with the disappearance of her sons. She answered, I did not have anything to do with the abduction of my children. Whoever did this is a sick and emotionally unstable person. David, for his part, said he believed Susan, still calling her my wife. Additionally, they were supposed to do an interview with the Union Daily Times newspaper, but they canceled. At 12.30 p.m., Susan told her family she had errands to run. In actuality, Sheriff Wells had sent for her. In essence, he had been conducting an almost nine-day interview with Susan, hoping to get her to tell him what had really happened on October 25th. She was taken to a place outside of the police department for an interrogation. In a small room at the First Baptist Church, Sheriff Wells once again asked her to clarify the inconsistencies in her statements. She was alone, sitting face-to-face with the sheriff. He told Susan that he knew the story about the carjacker was a lie. He confronted her with the fact that she could not have been stopped at a red light at the intersection, as she had said, if there were no other cars on the road. He added a lie of his own. He said that at the time she had reported being at the intersection, the sheriff's department had undercover officers at that location, working on a drug investigation. If Susan Smith had been there and had been carjacked, they would have witnessed it. He also said that her false statements about a black carjacker stealing her car and abducting her boys had caused racial tension in the city, and he'd have to tell the media her story was false to begin to reduce the tension. After he finished speaking, Susan asked him to pray with her. At the close of the prayer, Wells added, Lord, we know that all things will be revealed to us in time. And then said, Susan, it's time. She responded, my children are not all right. Over the next several minutes, Susan confessed to the details of October 25th. Before she began, she told Wells how ashamed she was and asked him for his gun so she could kill herself. After he calmed her down, she told him her story. Susan said she felt overwhelmingly depressed, isolated, and alone when driving on Highway 49 that night. She wanted to commit suicide. She had planned to drive her boys to her mother's house, but even that she felt she could not do. She believed her whole life was over, She had failed at everything and felt hopeless. She had driven off of Highway 49 and to the road leading to John D. Long Lake to commit suicide. Her children would be better off with her and God than if they were left without a mother, she explained. She planned for them to die together. She put the car in neutral so that it would roll down the boat ramp and into the lake, but at the last moment she pulled on the parking brake, stopping it. She did this three times, she said. Then she got out of the car. All of the windows were rolled up. With only the driver's door open, she reached in and released the parking brake, closing the door as it rolled into the lake. The boys were still strapped into their car seats, in the back seat. She told Wells she loved her sons and never meant to harm them. She wanted to undo what she had done after the car rolled into the lake, but she said it was too late. As she ran to the house, she began to plan her alibi. She told the sheriff she realized her story was not holding up to such intense scrutiny and knew she had to tell the truth. She then wrote out her confession. Before breaking the news to David and the rest of the family, Wells wanted to confirm her story. He sent divers back to the lake with the information he'd been given by Susan. Now they knew that the car had not been driven into the lake, but had slowly rolled in. They looked for it further out and deeper in the water. Within minutes, they found the car upside down, submerged in 18 feet of water. The murky water only had visibility up to 12 feet deep. It took powerful diving lights down with them and confirmed that it was the Mazda, with Michael and Alex still inside. Sheriff Wells acted quickly to reach David Smith and Susan's parents, but an unconfirmed Associated Press report about Susan's confession had already reached them. Susan was arrested and charged with two counts of murder. Her bail hearing was set for the following day. Sheriff Wells held a press conference at 5 p.m. to deliver the news. Even though there were suspicions about Susan's story, a gasp still went up from the crowd when the announcement was made. Immediately upon her arrest, intense emotions began to be expressed by the public, condemning Susan Smith. As she was transported to jail, there were already people lining the drive up, shouting baby killer and murderer at her. Many in the black community were also angry that she had placed the blame on a fictional black man and that the story had been so readily believed by the public. Susan Smith began to be called the most hated woman in America. Newspaper editorials, television talk show hosts, and pundits all spoke out against her. For a mother to kill her own babies was unthinkable, cruel, and evil, they said. Even comedian Steve Harvey included a bit about Smith in his stand-up act. Susan Smith, that woman that drove them two kids in the lake and killed her own two kids in the Carolinas over some man, they needs to take this fat heifer and drown her stinking ass. She drowned them kids. I got a bathtub in my house I don't hardly ever use. We can drown in that. The bodies of Michael and Alex Smith were autopsied the following day. It was confirmed that they had been alive before the car was submerged in the lake. Their deaths were ruled as a result of drowning. The night she was arrested, Susan wrote David a letter. The letter was filled with the words, I'm sorry. However, she also complained that her feelings were being forgotten by everyone. David had been shocked by her confession and now wondered what kind of person was she really. He read through her confession letter provided by the investigators and felt that he hadn't ever really known the true Susan. The funeral for Alex and Michael was held on Sunday, November 6. The boys were buried together in a small white casket with gold trim. Susan Smith was held without bail at the York County Jail. Her parents hired an attorney to represent her, who specialized in death penalty cases. The prosecutor who was selected to try the Susan Smith case was Thomas Pope. In January of the following year, he would file a notice of intention to seek the death penalty against Susan Smith. Susan was transferred to the women's correctional facility in Columbia to await her trial. She was given physical and psychological examinations by the prison staff, and placed on a 24-hour suicide watch. She was housed in a 6-by-14-foot cell where the lights were kept on 24 hours a day so that she could be constantly monitored by a closed-circuit television camera. Three weeks after she was arrested, Susan asked David to visit her. They met for one hour at the prison. She apologized again for killing their sons. He asked her why she had done it. She did not have an answer. At first, he had felt sorry for Susan now he became angry. He'd learned details from the investigators about her breakup with Finley and how she had rolled the car into the lake. He came to believe that the murders of his sons were premeditated by Susan. Their divorce became final the following May. Susan Smith's trial began on July 10, 1995. The defense opened the trial by telling the jury, this is a case of selfishness, of I, 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 and me, me, me. They asked jurors to hold on to their common sense in the weeks ahead because they would come to see Susan Smith as a selfish, manipulative killer who sacrificed her children for love of the son of a rich industrialist. The prosecution's case was based on the theory that Susan wanted to escape her loneliness, unhappiness, and the stresses of her life by establishing an exciting, intimate relationship with her wealthy boyfriend. In order to live this new life, Susan would need to free herself of her children and the demands of motherhood. The defense portrayed their client as a disturbed childlike figure who, after a lifetime of sadness, just snapped. Jurors were told that Susan was deeply depressed and had a sense of failure in her life. This sense of failure included acts of molestation at the hands of her stepfather, the suicide of her father, and her own suicide attempts. All of these events contributed to pushing her to the edge of the lake to kill herself and her children. At the last second, her body willed itself out of the car, and she lived, and her toddlers died, her attorney explained. Tom Finley testified about his breakup with Susan and how he told her he didn't want to be in a relationship that included children. Three of Susan's co-workers from Conzo testified that Susan had on separate occasions told them that she wondered how her life would be different if she had not gotten married and had children at a young age. Judge Howard refused to allow prosecutors to show the jury horrific pictures of Michael and Alex after they'd been under John D. Long Lake for nine days. Judge Howard also refused to allow prosecutors to question the medical examiner about the decayed nature of the bodies because he felt that the descriptions were so terrible that they would be prejudicial. Because she had confessed to the crime, the defense could only try to minimize her guilt by showing her as a damaged person who'd made a horrible mistake. In this way, they hoped to avoid the death penalty. They could not, however, plead insanity. Susan had been assessed by psychiatrists on both sides and each concluded that she was depressed, suicidal, and had a deep-seated need of approval from others, especially men, but she was not insane. To be found insane, she would have to be diagnosed as delusional, psychotic, or schizophrenic. She was not. To use this as a defense... It would also have to be proven that she could not distinguish right from wrong at the time of the crime. The fact that she lied about what she did and hid her guilt for over a week proved this not to be so. The defense experts testified about her family history of alcoholism, depression, and suicide. They brought up Susan's suicide attempts when she was a teen. The psychiatrist who had interviewed Susan testified that she admitted she had slept with several men in the weeks leading up to the murders, including her own stepfather, Tom Finley, David Smith, and her boss, C. Carrie Finley. The reason behind this admission was to show that she was not obsessed over Tom Finley. Instead, they wanted to show that Susan often used sex to mitigate her own feelings of loneliness and depression, but she was not fixated on any one man. They also described to the jury Susan's sexual abuse by her stepfather as a young girl and how it had so damaged her self-esteem that she continued to have sex with him as an adult even though it made her skin crawl, she'd said, because she had such a deep need for a father figure's approval. Bev Russell and Susan's mother had separated soon after Susan's arrest. While she was awaiting trial, Susan received a letter from Bev where he wrote, My heart breaks for what I have done to you. I want you to know that you do not have all of the guilt for this tragedy. The jury began its deliberations on July 22, 1995. After only two and a half hours, they reached their verdict, guilty of two counts of murder. Now her sentence would be decided. The jury could send her to life in prison or death by the electric chair. In his opening statement, her attorney said that the worst fate for Susan Smith would be life in prison, not death. She forever had to live with the guilt over the death of her two children, and that was the harshest sentence she could ever serve. Susan's brother, Scotty, pleaded for mercy on his sister's behalf. We've been devastated already with the loss of Michael and Alex. It seems sad and ironic that the tragedy of their loss is going to be used to sentence Susan to death. Susan's pain is in living, not in the fear of dying, he said. Bev Russell also testified, admitting his guilt and molesting his stepdaughter. He said he accepted part of the blame for the deaths of Michael and Alex. Russell pleaded for Susan's life, telling the jury that Susan was sick, and even though she loved her children, What happened was from a sickness. David Smith testified for the state. His testimony was heart-wrenching as he sobbed about the loss of his boys. He stated that all my hopes, all my dreams, everything I had planned for the rest of my life ended on October twenty-fifth, 1994. He talked about the helplessness he felt for nine days, not knowing where his boys were, and all the while Susan could have told him. The state argued that Susan had made a choice choosing to save herself and let her children die. They played a videotape that reenacted a car like Susan's, rolling down the boat ramp and into the water. Those who saw it were horrified to find out that it did not sink quickly as many had believed. Instead, it took a full six minutes for the car to fill with water, and as it did so, the back end of the car lifted up into a standing position. The boys, still strapped to their car seats, would have been in the last part of the car to be submerged. Susan had six whole minutes to try and save her children and did nothing. Again, it only took the jury two and a half hours to come to its decision. They rejected the sentence of death and decided instead to sentence Susan Smith to life in prison. Later, when asked for their reasoning, they cited Susan's confession to the crime and that they felt she needed help and did not deserve to die. Some jurors also believed she had intended to commit suicide. The judge sentenced Susan Smith to 30 years to life in prison. She will be eligible for parole for the first time in 2025, after she has served 30 years. Susan Smith was sent to the Administrative Segregation Unit at the Graham Correctional Institution in Columbia, South Carolina. During her incarceration, two correctional officers have been fired for having sex with her. She was then sent to a prison in Greenwood, South Carolina, where she has been since 2001. She has continued to violate rules while there. She was found twice with illegal drugs and with other contraband. In 2010, she went before a judge acting as her own attorney for her appeal. She claimed her Miranda rights had been violated and that she had been illegally coerced into confessing to the crime without the presence of an attorney. She also claimed that she had been suffering from battered women's syndrome, claiming that David Smith had abused her during their marriage. The judge rejected her appeal. Even though she has violated a number of prison rules, she still remains eligible for parole on November 4, 2024. David Smith has remarried, and he and his wife Tiffany have two children, Savannah, age 16, and Nicholas, age 14. He still visits the graves of Michael and Alex to talk to them. He says life is good, but some days the memories of what he's lost brings him to his knees. He is grateful to his wife and children for their love and support. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Thank you all so much for your support for this show and this series in particular. If you want to hear another great discussion about the Diane Downs case, I encourage you to listen to the recent episode of the True Crime Guys podcast, where they covered it as well great job guys thanks so much to all of you who are rating reviewing on itunes i will give out a few more prize packs next week for reviews so get them in soon and to my patreon supporters you rock you can become a patreon supporter at three different levels you can become a classic rocker at the two dollar level an alternative rock god at the five dollar level or earn the title of pure metalhead at the ten dollar level And you'll still rock even if you give a one-time donation. And you will still receive a sticker pack. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.